I don't know about you, but it feels like over the past couple of years, I've attended more funerals than birthday parties. Perhaps you've been there too. There seems to be more gloominess that outweighs any of the gladness. Through it all, perhaps you cling to to well-worn mantras like put your trust in Jesus and everything is going to be all right. It's what parents and grandparents perhaps used to tell us. It's perhaps what we heard in songs growing up. People like Mahalia Jackson promising that soon it will be done. The troubles of this world. Will it? When? How? Is religion, as some say, just a retreat from reality? Is it all simply a spiritualized version of a children's fairy tale? All of us just looking for a happy ending that is more fiction than fact. Or is there actually hope at the end of hurts? Is there actually happiness at the end of heaviness? Is there actually life at the end of death? That's what we'll consider this morning in our passage in Matthew's gospel. Over the last three or four years now, we've been walking slowly through the gospel of Matthew, the testimony about Jesus Christ. And this morning, we find ourselves towards the end of that book in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 through chapter 28, verse 15. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, starting at verse 57. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles under the chairs that you're sitting in or under the chair in front of you. If there's not, there's a Bible somewhere around you, I promise. You might have to search for it. If you can't find a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get you one. If you have a phone, you can scroll to the Bible. You, you got the Bible is at your hands. We want you to have your Bibles open because I want you to check to see if what I'm saying is what the Bible says. You should only go to a church. You should only believe preaching that actually comes from the Bible where the preacher doesn't just read a verse and then close the Bible and then talk about something totally different. You need to go to a church and listen to preaching where the preacher opens up the Bible, reads what the Bible says, explains what the Bible says, applies what the Bible says, and invites you to look with him to see if what that joker is saying is what the scriptures are saying. So you need to have your Bibles open. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that Bible home with you under the chair. We want you to have your own copy of God's word. All right. And if you want a better Bible than that, find me after church. We'll, we'll buy you a better Bible than even the one under your chairs. We want you to have your God's word even more than anything else this morning. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. And I'll read through chapter 28, verse 15. We read, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. 
And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes up to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Here's what I think is that the main idea of this passage, the main idea of the sermon this morning. And neither the power of death nor the schemes of man can discredit who Jesus truly is. Neither the power of death nor the schemes of man can discredit who Jesus truly is. Rather, his resurrection is proof that he is the son of God who saves those who trust in him. Now, that's like 45 words about, right? So I'm going to repeat that again. It is recorded, and so if you didn't catch it, you can go back and listen to it, or you can try to get with a neighbor and piece the various <laughs> phrases together and see if you come close to the semblance of what that main point is. Neither the power of death. That's, that's one, one thing we see at play. Neither the power of death nor the schemes of man can discredit, both together, they can't discredit who Jesus truly is. 
Rather, his resurrection is proof that he is the son of God who saves those who trust in him. As we study this text this morning, we'll center our thoughts around the three scenes we see in this passage revolving around Jesus' death. Three scenes, three points that we'll walk through this morning. Number one, we see the tomb filled. We see that in verse, verses 57 through 61, the tomb filled. Number two, we see the tomb sealed. We see that in verses 62 through 66. And lastly, we see the tomb empty. We see that in chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. Three scenes, the tomb filled, the tomb sealed, and then the tomb empty. Point number one, the tomb filled. This tomb in verses 57 through 61 is filled with what all tombs are filled with, a body, a dead body, the dead body of Jesus Christ. Just hours before Jesus Christ died on a cross outside of the Jerusalem gates, he had been beaten, mocked, and crucified till finally he breathed his last breath. Verses 46 through 50 of this chapter say that around the ninth hour, three o'clock p.m. of Friday afternoon, Jesus yielded up his spirit. And on Friday evening, we read here in verses 57 through 58 that, that a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph comes on the scene asking for the body of Jesus. And just notice that the detail Matthew gives us here. Specific people and specific places in society. That Joseph is listed here by name marks him out as an eyewitness that the original readers of this letter could go follow up with. Joseph of Arimathea, yeah, that same Joseph, the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, is probably still living when this book is written. If you don't believe me, go ask Joseph about these things. That his name is listed, points him out as an eyewitness, and that his status is listed. As a rich man who also was a disciple of Jesus shows us that all statuses, all classes are invited to follow Jesus Christ because all classes, all statuses need the salvation that Jesus Christ alone gives. You see, whether you got a little bit of money or a lot of money. Whether you got a PhD or a fifth grade education, whether you live well off or you live in the slums, we all share the same spiritual problem. We are all spiritually dead. We are all spiritually in debt and we all owe an amount that we can never pay back. An insurmountable amount that our sins have racked up that we've accrued against God that deserves to be paid out in God's wrath against sinners like us. All people need Jesus. He's not just for poor folks who people say religion is a crutch for. Uh, poor folks who just gullible and, and looking for Jesus or anyone else to, to get them out of their station in life. No, he's for sophisticated folks too. For folks like Joseph, who Mark's gospel also tells us not only was he a rich man, but he was a member of the Sanhedrin council of the Jewish ruling party. For Joseph, there's socially nothing to gain and everything to lose by following Jesus and yet Jesus was worth it to him. 
Matthew says this rich man was also a disciple of Jesus. Along with the lowly women he just named in the previous passage. Uh, along with the lowly, unlearned 12 disciples that we've studied all throughout this book, uh, along with the lame and the lepers, the blind men and the beggars, there's all kinds of people following Jesus Christ. That, that Joseph is pointed out as, as having some money, some status, is seemingly how he gains access to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in verse 58. You know, you can't just walk up to the governor's mansion, right? Don't you try to do that with your little, little status and no money, right? Governor Westmore is not going to invite you in. But, but, but Joseph had a little bit of money, a little bit of status. It, it, it gains him an, an, a hearing before Pontius Pilate. He, he goes and he asks Pilate to, to give him the body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus. You see, Jewish law required the, the removal of a body that was hanged and required that it be buried the same day. I mean, just listen to the specificity of a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 through 23. We read there, centuries, thousands of years before this story, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Jesus was cursed by God. He became a curse for us. He became sin for us. Though he committed no crime, he was treated like a criminal for us. And he suffered and died for us. And Joseph went and asked for this dead body. And he goes and he, he takes this dead body. He wraps it, the text tells us, in a clean linen covering. And he lays it in his own new tomb. And verse 61 says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there seeing Jesus buried. As they sat opposite the tomb. Let me just read the text. What's highlighted here, rather straightforward, is Jesus' dead body being buried. And why I want us to especially note that here is because many people deny this reality. Millions of Muslims claim that Jesus did not die on the cross. It was someone instead who just looked like Jesus. But here we, we see a dead body being buried and those who would know what Jesus really looked like are affirming that it was indeed him. I mean, Joseph being a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, he would have had multiple encounters with Jesus. How many times have we seen Jesus and the religious leaders go to blows in this text? Joseph would, would have had multiple encounters with Jesus. He knew what Jesus looked like. He knew who he trusted in. When he went and asked for Jesus' body, he would have known if the person that he got back was not Jesus of Nazareth. And certainly Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who traveled along with Jesus and the disciples in ministry, the Bible tells us that they went along with them, supporting their ministry the entire way. They would have known their Lord's face. They would have known if Joseph was burying a different man. Still, many others subscribe to what's sometimes called the, the swoon theory. Uh, 
that it was indeed Jesus on the cross, but that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Oh, oh, he was hurt. He was even critically hurt, but he just appeared dead. He never actually died. Or rather, what happened was he, he fell unconscious. He, he swooned and, and he was mistakenly placed in the tomb. But in the tomb, he, he was resuscitated. He was refreshed and he amazingly regained his strength, which explains why he walked out of the tomb a couple of days later. Friends, you can believe those theories. Millions of people believe those theories. But just know that if you believe those things, you are directly saying you disbelieve God. Just know that when you make these truth claims, trusting in your truth or others' truth, you are directly saying that this truth in the Bible is an untruth and that God is a liar. I wonder, are you prepared to blatantly reject what God's word says? I mean, there's all kinds of medical and just common sense problems with these various theories. I mean, they beat Jesus to a pulp. Don't nobody, <laughs> you get into a regular fist fight, you don't recover that quick, right? They beat this man to a pulp. He's just going to refresh in three days on his own, no medicine, no doctors in the tomb with him. But, but mostly the, the problem is that these theories just don't fit the details of the text. Right there, there's medical problems with it. They don't even fit the details of the text. And as I told you earlier, you need to look at the Bible open and let the text dictate what you should believe. I mean, the way the swoon theory is presented, for instance, is, is as if this whole crucifixion business is a kind of mom and pop operation. Right? I mean, folks just get crucified by some, some rookies, you know, some novices who, who don't know what they're doing, who are rather sloppy in their work, and who often produce sloppy results. But we've read through the last chapter of Matthew and so and seen just how official this crucifixion business was. I mean, there was an order by Pilate, the governor, that he gave for Jesus to be crucified. And that order was given to a battalion of soldiers who then brutally flogged Jesus as part of the painful process before leading him to Golgotha, where they nailed him to a cross to die. These men were professionals. They were expert executioners. They successfully crucified dozens, perhaps hundreds of people. They successfully crucified the two robbers right alongside with Jesus so that they died. Did they somehow fail just with Jesus? Joseph, who was likely at the cross, realized Jesus was dead. He asked Pilate to have the dead body removed. In verse 58, the same Pilate who first ordered Jesus to be killed now orders his dead body to be given to Joseph to be handed over by the same soldiers who put Jesus to death. John, John's gospel tells us at first Pilate asked, surprisingly, is Jesus already dead? Right? He was kind of surprised. Right? Pilate wanted to make sure that he was actually dead before he granted the request. To which the soldiers confirmed, oh, he is dead, and we poked a spear in his, in his side just to make sure of it. The, those soldiers then take Jesus' dead body from the cross, and then they deliver it over to Joseph. 
At no point do they think that there's the slightest breath of life left in Jesus' body. Because there wasn't. At no point does Joseph think that there's the slightest breath of life left in Jesus' body because there wasn't. So again, he does what you do with a dead body. He buried it. And in his own new tomb. Why, why this strange detail? His own new tomb. Well, for one, it, it shows the unfolding and unfailing plans of God coming to fruition. Way back in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, the, the passage about the coming suffering servant. Isaiah predicts they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You hear that? that they made his grave with a rich man. Matthew says Joseph was a rich man who laid Jesus in his own new tomb, in his own grave. Friends, even when things in the Bible seem most futile, you find that in them, God's promises are being fulfilled. Yeah, I think it encourages us to trust God even when we can't see or understand what he's doing in the moment. But also note that this new tomb that was freshly cut it's pointed out to emphasize that no other body was buried in there. Jesus's is the first and only body that's ever been in that new tomb. And this new tomb was then sealed with a great stone that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary see. So, so that when these same women, women return to the same tomb a couple of days later, there isn't some kind of a mistaken identity. That they came to the wrong place. Or that they, they came to a, a tomb that had multiple bodies in it and they simply miscounted and thought there was one missing when there wasn't. No, this tomb only had one body. The body of Jesus Christ. At least for now. As his body lay in this borrowed tomb. Right, friends, I pray we, we don't read this and miss the weightiness of the scene here. Jesus Christ buried the one who once filled the throne room of heaven whose praises or presence was filled with the praises of myriads of angels that same one now fills a tomb he who once sat atop of heaven exalted and who descended from heaven and became a man to live on earth as a man died as a man and now has descended to the lowest parts of the earth, down to the grave. Friends, here is Jesus at the height of his humiliation, discarded into the depths of the ground, buried in a tomb for us, for our sins. If you've lost a loved one, and many of you have, some of you quite recently, if you've lost a loved one, you, you, you know the sting of seeing your, your loved one's dead body. And when that casket is lying in front of you, 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 your heart is all over the place. You know the kind of intensified sting when they close that casket. But there's a different kind of weightiness. A different kind of sting when after the service is over, and you take that ride 15, 20 minutes down the road, and you get to that gravesite. 
And after that gravesite service is over and then they put that body over that hole ready to be lowered into the ground. There's a kind of finality that hits you. That kind of thing that I will never see them again. Friends, that's what we are here. You, you, you know that when you see that body right over that, 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 that tomb site, right over that burial site, you, you know that your loved one is gone, gone. Well, we'll feel those same emotions here, friends. I mean, we, we, we know the end of the story, and so I think sometimes we can rush too quickly to, to rejoice in Resurrection Sunday. Friends, sometimes we need to stop and feel the finality of Friday. If you were Joseph or Mary Magdalene or the other Mary or any of the other disciples, this Jesus you'd followed and thought to be the Messiah is now dead. It happened so quickly. And just as quickly now, his body is in the ground with a stone, a great stone rolled over it. Joseph and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are weeping. Jesus is gone, gone. How heavy must their hearts have been? How many must their tears have been? How much wrestling must have happened in their minds trying to make sense of all that they'd heard and believed about Jesus versus what they now saw of Jesus. The one who claimed to give life and give it more abundantly was dead. Death seemed to win again as the tomb was filled with Jesus's body. Not only does death seem to win, in this passage, so do the, the vicious schemes of men. Those vicious schemes of men seem to partner up with devil to boast over Jesus. Who do you think you are? That leads us to the second scene we see in this passage. The, not only is the tomb filled, number two, the tomb is sealed. Verse 62 advances the timeline a day to, to Saturday. Or the day after the day of preparation as Preparation for the Sabbath would begin Friday at sunset. And here we see another request being made to Pontius Pilate. But not by Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Jesus. But here the request is made by the chief priests and the Pharisees, the foes of Jesus. They've opposed Jesus throughout his ministry. They've been influential in, in turning the crowds against Jesus. They've coerced Pilate to to put Jesus to death and release for them Barabbas, a, a known criminal. And even post-death, their vitriol against Jesus only continues. I mean, look at verses 63 to 64. They say to Pilate, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and, and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. And notice they can't even call Jesus by name. He's simply that imposter. The seeing how he suffered on the cross hasn't softened their stance on him at all. Seeing all the events that happened after he died, the great earthquake, uh, the curtain of the, the mighty temple torn in two from top to bottom, 
the tombs of the saints cracked open. All that, seeing all that hasn't transformed their view of Jesus, not a bit. When the centurion and the Roman soldiers saw these things, they confessed up in verse 54, truly this man was the son of God. But the same sight just solidified the hatred and unbelief of the religious rulers. So that they saw and said, truly, this man was a fraud. And friends, I wonder if that's how you've come to this service this morning. With your mind already made up that no matter what you see about Jesus, no matter what you hear about Jesus, you will not believe Jesus. Your heart won't be changed. Your habits won't be changed. Your life will not be changed. If that's how you feel right now, pray right now, the Lord will release that grip. That's satanic and it's going to lead you to hell. It's interesting here. What these religious leaders reflect on. They say, we remember him saying, after three days, I will rise. Now, Jesus never directly said this to them, only to his disciples. Perhaps they, they, they caught it secondhand from Judas when he came to betray Jesus to them. Or maybe they pulled it from Jesus' teaching about raising the temple in three days. In any case, their reflection on that statement is what leads them to ask Pilate to secure the tomb so the disciples don't come steal the body and claim a resurrection. They reflect on what Jesus said, but never think that it could actually be true. Which is interesting, right? Because, because it just shows that they have selective memory. Because they'd heard Jesus say other things as well. I mean, they were there right in front of Jesus and they heard when Jesus told a, paraly a paralyzed man lying on his bed to rise and walk. And then they saw that that paralyzed man jumped up off his mat, took that mat and walked home. But reflecting on Jesus saying that he himself will rise doesn't lead them to think that he actually has the power to do for himself what he was able to do for others. You heard him tell the paralyzed man to rise and he rose. You heard him, you reflected, he said, I will rise, but you don't believe that. No, no, they reject that as outright false because they reject him as outright false. A phony. The first fraud was bad. This no good for nothing out of Nazareth, man called Jesus, Jesus claiming to be the Messiah of the Jews. <laughs> that first fraud was bad enough. They thought that they'd shut up that first fraud fully and finally by putting Jesus' body in a, in a tomb, by, by killing Jesus. And now they seek to put the proverbial nail in the coffin and make sure that no further or worse fraud is perpetuated. Some false belief that this charlatan actually got up from the grave. And so they use all their power, they use all their influence, they use all their planning to keep Jesus' name and claims out of people's mouths forever. Basically, they say, we're trying to erase Jesus Christ from the history books. Make him no more than, than a mere mention, along with all the other imposters throughout history who claim to be something special, but who now share the same common lot in cold, dark graves. They basically wanted to, to crush any remembrance of Christ and any semblance of hope for a fledgling Jesus movement. 
to order the grave be made secure, they asked Pilate, so that his disciples don't come and secretly steal his body. Because that's the only way possible that Jesus' body could come up out of that tomb. They act as if the supernatural is impossible with Jesus. Now, it's easy to target the religious leaders here, isn't it? But can you see yourself? Can you see your own cynicism exposed through their thoughts and actions? And you've heard many of Jesus' claims, but you don't act as if they could ever happen. You've already got some predetermined commitments against Jesus doing the seemingly supernatural in your life. And friends, I'm not talking here about if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I'm talking about if you are a professing Christian, perhaps a member of this local church, but you don't think that Jesus Christ can do anything out of the normal. And, and so for you, Jesus cannot turn your marriage around. He can't change your kids' hearts. He can't change your spouse's heart. He can't change your brother or sister's hearts. He can't change that or break that addiction or that sinful habit. He can't do it. Friends, there's few things worse than having a kind of dead religion. Possessing all the formalities of faith, but not possessing the faith itself. Not having the right kind of faith. The right kind of faith that has the right kind of object, object of faith. Uh, faith in Christ to do the seemingly impossible. In verse 65, Pilate agrees to the religious leader's request. He grants access to a troop of soldiers and says, go make it as secure as you can. Somebody has called this the funniest verse in all the Bible. Go. <laughs> Make Jesus' tomb as secure as you can. See if you can contain the limitless one. See if you can lock up God Almighty. All right. See if you can make the omnipotent God powerless. Try to shut him down. Do everything in your power. Go ahead, we'll give you more resources. Do everything in your power to keep this man in the grave. And so they, they, they go to their plotting and they got a solution. That verse 66 says they. They sealed the, the great stone that Joseph earlier had laid up against the, the entrance of the tomb with a kind of ancient version of a gorilla glue. Right? They, they, they make that thing as secure as they possibly can. Maybe they put electrical tape and duct tape over top of it. Right? They, nobody's going to get in or out this bad boy. Then they double it up. They, they put a guard of soldiers, of skilled Roman soldiers to watch the, the tomb day and night until the third day. This is the tightest tomb in Jerusalem. This tomb is under maximum security. Ain't nobody going up in there. And certainly ain't nobody coming up out of there. Now, it was no doubt a strong match against the measly disciples to come steal. Yeah, look, they all ran when Jesus got arrested. These guys were fishermen. They ain't had no strength. Yeah, that, that, that is a, that's enough for them. That's strong enough to keep the disciples out, but it is no match against God himself. Because what can men's schemes do against God? Absolutely nothing. We learn that in the third and final scene, the tomb empty. The tomb empty. Verse 1 of chapter 28 places us early Sunday morning. 
Oh, yeah, if, you, if you're growing up in a traditional black church, you know that the, the pastor got that early Sunday morning. It gets, that, that make you feel good, but we're going to get there. We're going to get there. <laughs> we read that it was the day after the Sabbath, which was on a Saturday. It was toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Sunday. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the, the same two women listed up in verse 61 who saw Jesus' body buried in the tomb, well, now they go back to see the tomb. And Mark's gospel tells us that they went with oils and spices to go anoint or embalm Jesus' body. Or to give him a, a full, proper burial. Well, something that Joseph probably didn't have enough time to do before the Sabbath started on Friday evening. But, but there was a problem. How would they get in to anoint the body? I mean, they, they'd seen the great stone roll to the entrance of the tomb when Jesus was buried. And the previous day, we, we just read that the tomb was triply enforced now. Right? It had the large rock there, and it was sealed, and it had a guard of soldiers guarding it. The women were devoted to honoring Jesus, even in his death. But they didn't have a solution to all these obstacles. Mark tells us that that they were saying to one another on the way, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? They didn't have an answer to the question, but they kept walking towards the tomb. They kept walking towards the Lord. Oh, there's an example for us there, you know, because some of us allow difficulties to drown out or detour our desires to honor the Lord. Because we meet those difficulties with declarative statements rather than open-ended questions. I mean, were this us, we might definitively say here, no one will roll away the stone for us. And so we might just stay in our beds early this Sunday morning. Instead of asking who will roll away the stone for us and going forward to find the response. You see, friends, faith walks toward Jesus. Faith has feet. Faith doesn't just wait for all the things in life to get worked out. Faith says, I'm going to trust that some, something's going to happen because God has already shown me some amazing things before. Amen. Faith asks questions. It's okay to ask questions. Faith asks hard questions of the Lord. Who's going to roll away the tomb? And then faith moves toward the Lord and trusting the response to him. These women kept walking. Wondering how the stone would be removed. And, and while they were walking, while they were wondering, the Lord was working. As he often does when we entrust him with our difficulties, the Lord responds. We read in verse 2, behold, there was a great earthquake from the Lord and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was dazzling like lightning in his clothes, white as snow. And verse 4 says that when the guards saw him, they became like dead men. I mean, what a twist of irony here. These were the same soldiers dispatched in verse 66 to go watch over a dead man. And here in the face of this angel, they themselves become like dead men while the dead man ain't dead no more. When the women arrived, they too were, were tempted to be terrified. But to them, the angel offers words of consolation and eternal comfort and joy. 
Look at verse 5. The angel says to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Notice the angel confirms Jesus really was crucified. Jesus really did die. And that you really have come to the right place to find the dead body of Jesus. Only one thing. Verse 6, he ain't here. What you mean he ain't here? What happened to him? Where, where he be at? Oh, nobody took him. Nobody simply transferred his body to another tomb like they do in kind of hospital wards or prison cells. No, keep on reading. He is not here for or because he has risen as he said he would. And perhaps immediately, a download of data filled these women's minds of what Jesus Christ said would happen. I mean, every single time in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus Christ predicts his death, he ends it not with a period, but a comma. Death would be followed by resurrection on the third day. Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus says from that time, or Matthew tells us from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, comma, and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, verses 22 through 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, comma, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 19. Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, comma. And he will be raised on the third day. Well, here it is now. I can't make no more up there. That's all. There's only three. I said, look at the text. I ain't going to add nothing to the text. <laughs> what do we say in the text? We find ourselves here on the third day from the crucifixion. And Jesus's tomb is empty. The declaration from his messenger, this angel, he is risen just as he said he would be. And neither death nor the devilish schemes of the chief priests and the Pharisees, nor the strongest Roman seal, nor the fiercest Roman soldiers could keep the son of man in the grave. He is not here, nor will he ever be in any kind of grave ever again. For he has risen, is alive, and will live forevermore. Amen. Amen. Now, for the rest of our time in this passage, thinking about this empty tomb, I want us to consider two questions. Number one, is it true? And number two, what does it mean for me? First, is the resurrection true? In a word, yes. Amen. You might expect me to say that. I'm preaching this passage, right? Uh, let me explain how Matthew and, and all the other gospel writers go to show the, the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus' resurrection. 
they all detail that the first witnesses to the empty tomb are women. You might say, well, duh, girls rule the world. Take a few clicks back. God rules the world. We love sisters, but, you know, Lord is best. And in the first century, there, there wasn't such a positive perception of women. As we've noted before, women were considered second-class citizens in society. Women, it was thought, were gullible and naive. They were easily duped and unreliable. Women's testimonies in legal proceedings were non-credible. You can't have a woman witness because it's like having no witness. I mean, who would believe a woman? Consider the attitude, not just in the first century, but spilling over into the second century. By the Greek philosopher Celsus, who scoffed at the idea that Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the resurrection. Uh, this the philosopher Celsus says in the second century, after death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands were pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. You hear that? Who could trust a hysterical female? And yet, that's exactly whose testimonies Matthew and the other gospel writers tell us to trust. Were the resurrection a fake? If it was just a false story that Jesus' followers were trying to spread to get people to believe, they would have picked as the first eyewitnesses respectable people. They would have picked people like Joseph of Arimathea, people who got some class in society. Maybe they would have had Pilate confessing that he saw the risen Jesus. They certainly would not have picked unbelievable women. That would only undermine the credibility of the story. Unless the story was actually true. Even with all the embarrassment and mockery that they knew women witnesses would bring from the watching world around them. Even with all the embarrassment and mockery that they knew the, the intellectual folks, the philosophers and the rulers and, and even the regular Jewish people would bring when you say that these women were the first witnesses, the gospel writers simply had to tell the story as the story actually happened. Women first saw the empty tomb. I mean, notice the angel invites them in, in verse 6 to, to come see the place he lay. Come look at the empty tomb with your own eyes. If you keep reading here in verse 7, you see that women were the ones who also were the first to tell the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. And then incredibly, look down in verse 9 in chapter 20, 20, 28. Women were the first ones to see with their own eyes the resurrected Lord. Amen. We read there that Jesus met these women and said, greetings. And they took hold and worshiped him. After which he did as the angels had also instructed. He commissioned these women to go and spread the word to his disciples. The word of these women was to be trusted then and now. Because the story of Jesus' resurrection is true. 
from their witness of an empty tomb, from these little nobody women, their little witness of an empty tomb, millions of people have followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Were it all a lie, it would have died a long time ago, along with its supposed leader. But because he is not dead, Christianity lives and continues to spread. Is the resurrection true? Yes. Second question. If the resurrection is true, then what does it mean for me? Well, friends, quite frankly, it means that everything must change. If Jesus Christ rose from the grave as he said he would, then everything else he ever said must also be true. And you must believe every single word he ever spoke. It means you must believe Jesus' claim that he is the eternal son of God. It means you must believe when Jesus says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It means you must believe when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. It means that you must believe Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It means you must believe when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You must believe Jesus and you must bow before him and worship him as the Lord. Did you notice in verse nine? Look at verse nine. What Jesus didn't do when the women fell before him, grabbed his feet and worshiped him. He didn't push them away. He didn't scold or reprimand them. I mean, that's what angels do in the body. When people bow before them and try to worship them, they reject it and point people to worship God. That's what great men like Paul do in the Bible. When, when people fall before them and try to worship them, they reject that worship and point people to go and worship God. But Jesus does not reject worship or point people somewhere else because there is no other place to go. There's no other proper person to point to. He is the right object of worship. Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Because of who he is, the eternal son of God. Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Because of what he has done. He humbled himself. He took on flesh and lived the perfect life as a man that you and I should have lived. And then he laid down that life. He picked up a cross and he died the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins. He suffered and died as our substitute in our place. He took the full wrath of God for us, the full punishment that our sins deserve. And he died and was buried. But here we see him raised. His resurrection acting as the receipt that all our sins have been paid in full. That God accepted his son's sacrifice for us and rose him up victorious over sin and over Satan and over the grave. 
It's a demonstration. Jesus' resurrection is a demonstration that his work for us is complete and he is who he says he is, the son of God who came to save sinners from their sin. And now the all-powerful risen Christ has ascended into heaven and calls all of us to repent of our sins, to turn from our sins, and to put all our trust in him for eternal life. The same kind of eternal life that he enjoys. A life that lasts beyond physical death. If we turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus, his fate becomes ours. Our bodies may die, but we will be raised to newness of life with glorified bodies to live with him forever. Friends, is that your future? Are you assured that that is your future? Now, I'm not talking about if that's your mom's future and you know about it. Or your grandmother's future, you know she's going to, to, to heaven. If that's the future of, of people that you go to funerals and witness and hear people talk about, yeah, you believe that they are going to have eternal life. I'm asking this morning, is that your future? Are you assured that after you die, and we all will, that you will live forever with Christ? If you don't know that future for yourself, today is the day of salvation. Don't, don't trust in tomorrow or second chances. Today is the day. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. If you want to know more about what it looks like for you, talk to anyone around you after service. Stick around. We'll even feed you as we talk to you about how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. I'll be at that door right there after service. Come talk to me. I'll be there as long as we need to to talk about how you can know this salvation and have this eternal life for yourself this morning. The resurrection produces hope, real hope, the kind of hope everybody in the world is grasping after, trying to find it at the bottom of a bottle or the end of a blunt, They're trying to find it through the images on the screen. And all that kind of reaching out for hope just leaves you empty. But there is hope but not at the bottom of a bottle, bottle or the emptiness of, of what that high brings you. There is hope at the bottom of an empty tomb. Yes. There's hope that life is lasting for us. There's hope that death and people's evil schemes need not fear us. Jesus has conquered them both, and in him we shall conquer too. The resurrection produces boldness. We don't need to worry about being the most intellectual or articulate or well-respected. The power doesn't lie in the messenger, but in the message we take. He has risen. Oh, look at what the Lord has done through faithful women witnesses. What will he do through you and me? What will the Lord do to you and me this morning? What does the resurrection mean for you? It can make you a new person. But friends, you must not go away still rejecting what happened or trying to explain it away. We see in the final verses of, of chapter 28, verses 11 through 15 here, that while the women went out testifying of Jesus' resurrection, so did the soldiers who, who kept guard. They went and told the religious leaders all that had happened. And, and look at their response in verses 12 through 13. They, they 
paid off the soldiers. The religious leaders paid off the soldiers and told them to tell the people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. The very thing they first tried to prevent, the disciples coming to steal the body, is now the story they try to spread. Foolishness. And verse 15 says the soldiers took the money. And the story has been spread among the Jews even to this day. Friends, see the destructive and detrimental effects of disbelief. Whole false religions exist today because of the spread of this lie. Whole false religions exist today of trying to discredit Jesus' resurrection and disprove Christianity. And whole heaps of people are headed to hell off disbelieving what clearly and truly happened early Sunday morning. Don't you be one of them. Jesus Christ indeed died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He is who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to do. And we must trust him fully and completely. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to trust you and not ourselves. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you for the tomb of Christ. We thank you for the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and the life that is found in him. Oh, Lord, strengthen our faith in your risen son and grant new faith to those who don't know him. That we might live forever with him. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.